Hey, Econ News listeners, this is your host, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of the Environmental Protection Information Center. I'm bringing you a discussion that I had on KMUD's Environment Show about housing production in Humboldt County and housing issues that we're facing here and across our state. We're rebroadcasting that section here today. Hope you enjoy it and check out the KMUD Environment Show Tuesdays, 7 p.m. on KMUD Radio. This is Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of the Environmental Protection Information Center, and we are going to be talking about housing creation as an environmental issue. And I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Matt Simmons, attorney at Epic. Hey, Matt. Hey, Tom. Good to talk to you. And I'm joined in my home studio by Brian Heaton. Yeah, local housing policy advocate, city planner by trade. And I do work for the California Department of Housing and Community Development in the Housing Policy Division. However, this evening, I am just a housing enthusiast person. So we're, we're talking about housing, kind of an interesting environmental issue, because some of us might not inherently think that housing is an environmental issue. Matt, I wanted to toss it to you because in a group text thread, you sent out just one of the ways that how we develop housing can influence the environment. So let's let's start with that. Yeah, so the, the thing I sent out in the group text was a graph. And on the y-axis, there's how much energy is used in transportation on average. So that's how many gallons of gas you're burning to get around or how much electricity you're using for a train or whatever. And then on the x-axis, we're cities of the world. And so you can imagine you can have a very spread out city like a lot of our American cities where you have a lot of suburbs going sometimes over an hour away from the center of the city. Everyone lives far away, drives a long time to get to work, and then drives back. Or you can have a much denser city where you have denser housing and a lot more commercial and work opportunities close to where people live. And so people drive less, or they take a bike, or they walk, or they take public transit. And what the graph showed really well was that those denser cities use a lot less energy per person to get around, especially from a CO2 climate perspective, denser housing leads to less issues. So there's something, though, that feels kind of contradictory about the idea of dense housing as an environmental value, right? I think that we think of the environment as trees and forests and fields, and then you think of an urban form and that feels distinctly unenvironmental in some sense. But in reality, there are over 7 billion of us on this planet. We take up a lot of space as individuals. That sort of rural exurban development is just not something that can be copied across all people. We need to have dense urban areas in order to have humanity fit into a reasonable space to let there be wild places and wildlife elsewhere as well. And that's something that really turns me on to the idea of urbanism, is that weirdly, we are able to exist as a rural county because of our urban areas. If we were to have the population of the Humble Bay area spread out in kind of a rough distribution pattern like Blocksburg or Alder Point or, or some other place, we'd be out of room very quickly. And that's a bit of an obvious one. The environmental movement has sometimes had challenges with this, but impacts to humans are an environmental concern, right? We, we want to be able to have people live good, high-quality lives and to thrive and to be able to access the things that they need. That is kind of part and parcel with environmentalism. Right now, we 
are experiencing across the state of California and here too in Humboldt County, housing insecurity in our community because we have underbuilt housing. We don't have enough beds. We don't have enough houses for all the people who need them. And as a result, housing prices have increased and have forced people into pretty bad situations, either moving out further away from their job and then having to trade driving long distances to get to their place of employment in order to afford the rent. Or in the most extreme circumstances, it can even drive homelessness. The cost of housing is one of our prime drivers here in Humboldt County of homelessness. Another potential consequence is just people leaving leaving Humboldt, leaving or to move yeah. somewhere else where housing is more affordable because they can't afford to live here anymore. So Brian, you at one point worked for the city of Eureka as a housing planner. I just said that, that I think that there is a housing crisis here. Would you agree or would you disagree? I would agree. I think that term housing crisis is maybe a little bit more accurate. If you use the term housing affordability crisis, which is really what it comes down to, it's kind of sad to think of homes as a commodity, but they are. There's a certain supply. And yeah, I I don't think you need to talk to very many people to see that if you compare wages in Humboldt County with rent prices in Humboldt County or wages against home prices, you'll see that both rents and home prices are going up faster than incomes. So it means people have less money and they're paying more and more of their income. And and what happens in that case is people don't choose to be homeless. People just end up paying a greater percentage of their income. So housing that is affordable to someone is housing that costs about a third of their income. And what happens in, in California especially is that that 30% creeps up to 35% of your household budget, and then 40%, and then 45%, and then 50%. Yeah, and then it gets people in a bad situation. All the other things that a person wants to achieve or do in their life is really hard when rent is 50%, sometimes 60% of what they're what they're earning. And I just want to take a quick pause to say that our good friend Caroline Griffith, Executive Director of the North Coast Environmental Center, has just popped in and is joining the rest of our show. Thank you so much, Caroline, for for joining the show tonight. For sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So we have a housing affordability crisis here. Is building more housing a solution to an affordability problem, Brian? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an easy answer, right? So if we talk about a housing market, housing also responds to the old laws of supply and demand. Yeah. Supply and demand, basic macroeconomics. There's two inputs. You're looking at the model. What's the supply of housing and what's the demand of housing? And by not building housing, cities in the county can, in a sense, not build very much housing. That affects the supply. But if the demand of housing is going up, then it becomes a a scarcity situation. And the people, if there's a fixed amount of housing, then the people with the most money will always outcompete people with less money for that housing. And we've, we've seen that. Go talk to anybody in Santa Cruz that's been there a while and talk to them and say, what was it like in the 70s in Santa Cruz? And they'd say, well, you could buy a house. We bought a house. And then you say, could you buy a house now if you had just moved to Santa Cruz? And they'd say, no, absolutely not. There's no way we could do it. And then you say, well, what about your kids? Can your kids, they grew up in this house in Santa Cruz. Can they buy the house down the street? And they say, absolutely not. There's no way they could do that. <laughs> so let's build more housing, right? Absolutely right. not. I mean, you know, it, I talked to a local woman who said that she bought her house 30 years ago. She bought it when she was in her late 20s, but she said that she and her partner recently did the calculation and that if they were to buy that same house today, they would have to collectively make $125 an hour. Yeah. Well, so I, I think that this came out in the news recently that 
the average home price in Humboldt County now to get a mortgage to cover the cost of the average home price with the minimum down payment, you need to make over $100,000 a year as a couple, which as a reminder, that is far, far above the average median income here in Humboldt County. So we, we see the problem. Brian, help me out here though. Because if housing is a market commodity, shouldn't the invisible hand of the market, those ghostly forces that that direct our capitalist economy, shouldn't it kind of self-correct, right? Like, so if housing is so expensive, I assume that developers are wanting to build housing. So how is this not a, a, a self-defeating problem, a self-correcting problem? Developers is a loaded term. I would say there are people that want to build housing from the mom and pops out there to folks that just want to build their own house all the way up through corporate developers. I think there is a lot of interest, but really local governments, cities and counties have traditionally had control over land use. It's cities and counties and they're the board of supervisors or city council that decides how many houses can get built, where they can be built what land is zoned for commercial uses, what's land zoned for industrial uses. And when there's that kind of control, since World War II was really the last time where there was a general public interest in building lots of housing, the interest has been to not build the housing. Most city councils up and down the state has said, my constituents say, don't build any housing. And that's pretty much what has happened. And then at the same time, those same constituents are saying, we're tired of seeing unhoused people. (laughs) That is a part of it because, and to be really frank about it, this whole concept of housing crisis really only applies to people that are struggling to find adequate housing that meets their budget. If you have a fixed rate mortgage that you can comfortably afford, or if your house is paid off, you're not experiencing a housing crisis. I think that's wise to point out. You're doing great, but yeah, but, the, the increase in the housing costs has benefited you. Yeah, because- you are you are thriving. Your net worth is going up. Your mortgage payment stays the same. I think it's really, really easy to kind of shrug your shoulders and say, "Not my problem." I'm doing great. But I think most people would agree that thinking only about your own personal household's welfare is not the best overall approach to public policy. Matt, so Matt, we were talking about this problem of local governments kind of standing in the way of housing creation. Can we talk about what's going on at the University of California, Berkeley and the city of Berkeley? Do you want to give a rough rundown of that? Yeah, so the Berkeley University has been increasing its enrollment over the past couple of years. There's a lot of students who want to attend Berkeley, and so they've been increasing the number of students they've been letting in. At the same time, the city of Berkeley has not been building a lot of new housing, and neither has the university. And so for all the reasons we just talked about, like local homeowners don't want to build new housing, the city council doesn't approve of enough, there's zoning that says that they have to have single-family housing near a giant university. And so some local homeowners who don't like the idea of more students coming in sued Berkeley using the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA. And what CEQA says is if you're going to make some sort of change like that, you have to conduct an environmental review. And Berkeley never conducted an environmental review for letting in more students. And these neighbors argued that that was a fatal error and that they had to do that before they could let in the new students. 
And a district court uh, agreed with the neighbors and have now blocked several thousand students who were going to be admitted into Berkeley this year from being admitted. The Supreme, they appealed this to the Supreme Court of California, and the Supreme Court of California did not overturn that order. So this is, this is really happening. A couple of neighbors decided that they didn't want these students to get admitted to Berkeley, and they used an environmental law, which I use in, in my work and Tom and I use to like stop logging or pipelines or whatever. They use environmental law to stop that. And I should say one of these neighbors, his name is Paul, and he's sort of the leader of this group called Save Berkeley Neighborhoods, went to Berkeley, bought his house right next to Berkeley, and then bought a second home in New Zealand where he spends half the year. And then I guess he spends the other half of the year in Berkeley fighting any students from being able to go to Berkeley or build housing in the area. And I just think it's it's so frustrating that this person benefited from this college, bought his home back when home prices are cheaper, bought a second home in another country that it does, has its own housing issues. So he's taking up two homes and then he spends his free time fighting to keep homes, fighting to keep students out of housing in Berkeley. It's just, it's so incredible to me. So I, I think that we see kind of failures of housing development on multiple different levels here, right? So you have the city of Berkeley, which has historically used its planning commission and, and zoning code and local government to inhibit private home development. We have a number of kind of infamous examples of the planning commission denying new multifamily housing units over what I would say are pretty specious environmental concerns. The city of Berkeley as a problem. We have the NIMBY group, the Not In My Backyard group, which is weaponizing state law and using the state court system to try to fight an influx of people that would further worsen this housing problem. But we also have the university here. And I think the university has some blame as well because the university was just generally expanding and wasn't providing sufficient contributions to the local community. So the Shakespeare quote from Romeo and Juliet, a plague on both their houses. So here we have a plague on all of their lack of housing units, right? Everyone is to blame here. Oh, I will just say the university has tried to build housing and has been stopped by the NIMBYs several times. The same NIMBYs, in fact, who stopped them from admitting more students. Not always. And then I agree that the university does have some blame, but I'd say the blame is not equally distributed. There has been a bill proposed by Scott Weiner to allow universities exempting them from the CEQA process if they're building student housing, which is one of those that I think is that's a little bit scary. I understand that the need to build the housing, but then that does presuppose that they are going to do it the right way. All right. And I just want to interrupt to say we have another great housing advocate joining the line, Lulu Michelson, Landecker Democracy Fellow and housing nerd. Welcome to the Environment Show, Lulu. I am so stoked to be here talking with some of my favorite local folks about an issue that I care a lot about. So I thank you. All right. So we're talking about Berkeley. I, I think that that the Berkeley case is really interesting because we are likely to see our own increase in enrollment at Cal Poly Humboldt. So I know that the city of Arcata is concerned with potential new students coming in, given that there is already a housing affordability problem in the city. But I, I think that we're also seeing the same patterns that we saw with the Berkeley example replicate here. 
Well, well, kind of the same problems here. We have the city of Arcata attempting to loosen zoning restrictions that would allow more dense housing to change the zoning classification for an area that they're calling the gateway area to change it from primarily light industrial to dense residential development. And we see the few neighbors in the community very concerned about this. But it is a proposal to to do the thing that we need to do, which is to allow for more housing development in our urban cores. And we're, we're seeing this problem replicate. Matt, as an Arcaden, we have two here on the call and th- three Eurekans. As an Arcaden, what is your, your take on the gateway? Sure. So I'm an Arcaden and I'm, I'm a relatively new Arcaden. I, I moved here about two years ago. And I think for a lot of people who, like we were saying earlier, own their home or on a fixed mortgage, they don't entirely understand what the current situation is in terms of trying to find a place to rent in Humboldt. We don't have a lot of new housing. We have a lot of older housing that's being fought over by students and by other people who are moving here to work. And then we have a lot of people who are living in vans or even living on the street, right? And so I think the idea of building new housing to try to increase the supply and especially new housing that's dense and walkable and near to the center of town, just like the gateway plan, just makes so much sense. And so when I heard about this plan, I was I was actually really excited about it. I thought, oh, this is so good. This is going to be so good for the city that I've moved to and decided to make my home. And so the fact that it's being opposed for reasons that we can talk about the specific reasons they oppose the plan or not, but when you compare it to the housing affordability crisis that we're currently in, these reasons just really don't hold up to me. And so we, we wrote a letter together, Tom and Caroline and Lulu, and I think we made our position pretty clear. Yeah, I think we did too. So I think that we might have a, a pretty good cross-section of thoughts on overpopulation. Caroline, I know that you want to jump in on this subject, so I'm going to give you the first word. Totally. So one of the things that comes up a lot at the North Coast Environmental Center, we get letters in the mail from organizations. I've gotten letters to the editor from people who are very concerned about overpopulation. Most of all of them are anti-immigrant. Many of them have explicitly advocated for eugenics programs. So I want to say that one of the main way that we deal with the overpopulation problem is to empower women to decide when and if they have children. It's a pretty simple solution. And actually, that has been shown to be the case, that when we do give women that choice and educate them and empower them, it benefits the planet in multiple ways. And I will say also, when it comes to campgrounds for folks to sleep in, we're talking about more than that. We want adequate housing for people to sleep in that's safe. We want people to be safe and dry and warm. And and one of the ways that we do drive down the cost and take the power away from those landlords is to have more housing so people have more choice. I think that the answer to both of those questions is choice. Yeah, that certainly stands out to me too, Caroline. On overpopulation, I don't like the the ways that we can control that as a government. It is a little bit too invasive into our lives. What we can do with the population that we do have is the thing that I, I'm more focused on, and that's the discussion about building housing as well. Empowering women to make choices over their own body and also build housing. I fully support the recommendation to have safe parking areas, tent cities, whatever we want to call them. I think that this is a necessary thing for our cities now. We have a homelessness crisis in our area. 
and we need to address it. We need to both address it in the long term by providing housing for people, but we also need to have the salve that can help an individual who is experiencing that problem at the moment. And having a safe place for that person to live is really exciting. So I'm going to give a lot of credit here to the city of Arcata, who are moving forward with a safe parking area in the city. Hopefully my city, Eureka, will follow suit. It is something that is a long time coming in, in both of our areas. The Econ News Report, we're talking about housing. We're, we're talking about Arcata and we're talking about the Gateway Plan as one example of a way to build housing. So Gateway... That is relying on market forces, changing the zoning code to allow for a denser development and a change in zoning type to allow residential development. So first, Lulu, this is a topic that you're probably pretty familiar with. How can we prevent things like Airbnbs and other uses of our housing stock from competing against housing for people in our community? Yeah, so I think I'm really glad that we're bringing rental housing into the conversation because when we think about comprehensive housing policy, and and this may have come up in, in past conversations, we're really thinking about three Ps, which people have probably heard before, which is production, creating more housing, which is very needed, but also thinking about preserving the existing housing that we already have, that's the second P, and then protecting tenants who are already in our communities, which is the third P. And so when we think about comprehensive housing policy and thinking about solutions towards our affordable housing crisis, we really need to think about those three Ps. And so in an area like Arcata and Humboldt County that sees so much tourism, there is going to be a tension within the existing housing stock between facilitating all these great visitors who want to come and and bring that energy and economic vitality to the area, and also making sure that we're protecting longstanding renters and figuring out how to strike a balance between those different needs. Obviously, creating more housing starts to alleviate some of the pressure on the existing stock. But I think there's a lot of really strategic ways that municipalities can really understand the impact of short-term rentals on the market and how that might be affecting local communities. I think right now we do see different communities showing up differently in this region about how that they they control that that vacation rental market. I would say that to me, a healthy market can sustain both renters and vacationers. But right now, there's the housing stock is so tight and the rental market here is so tight and the vacancy level is so tight that it becomes, it feels like more of a trade-off than I think it needs to be. And so when we look at things like the gateway plan, we see the opportunity to build more rental housing options, more density that allows for for some of that pressure to be alleviated so that long existing single family homes and rentals in the neighborhoods don't take on that pressure. So I'd say that to me, there's like a supply piece, but I also think thoughtful rental protections are super important. And we're seeing vacancy levels in the area that are so low, it means that long-term renters are not going to be able to stay. And I think this is one point I wanted to bring up when we think about the environmental impact of housing. I've seen it again and again in, in different cities that I've worked in. The first thing that happens is that low-income renters get pushed out. They get pushed farther away from their jobs, which means that they have longer commute times. They're often living in areas that are less central, farther away from resources and good schools. They have to commute for hours on end. Those are often areas that are hotter, 
higher fire risk. And so when you think about a region like Humboldt, where are folks going to go when they get priced out? What are their options? And can the area sustain that type of shifting? And so I think it's not just vacation rentals, but it's a larger question about renters in general. How are we supporting renters, especially folks making lower wages to stay in the area and thrive and really provide the nursing support and the grocery store support and the administrative support to our higher education institutions and the service sector that we all rely on. There's a big important questions that we need to be bringing in and and hopefully having folks live close to their job means less emissions and and a healthier community for everyone. So in Shelter Cove, I, I don't believe that the county has an Airbnb policy or a policy regarding you know, the total number of rentable units or or what have you. Other jurisdictions, Trinidad, Eureka, have developed their own policies. Arcata has developed a policy here. So I would say if you're in Shelter Cove, I believe that Rex Bone is your representative. Give Rex a call. Tell him that you need housing and that Airbnbs are forcing you out and see what he has to say. I'd be really curious to, to hear from you, caller. Let's turn to another way to potentially develop housing. So we've talked about the Arcata example, what Arcata is trying to do, which is remove zoning barriers and allow housing developers to go in and, and build the housing units that we need. The city of Eureka is trying something different. Brian, would, would you feel comfortable talking about the parking lot housing program because you helped to create it? I mean, I would just pivot it a little bit. In recent years, there's been more interest on the part of local governments, cities and counties, to look at publicly owned lands. When I think publicly owned lands, I think like like forest service <laughs> land, but publicly owned in the sense of just parcels of land that are around a city. City governments, county governments, they end up owning land where the courtyard is, where a city parking lot is, where all kinds of stuff is, storage and whatnot. And the reason cities and counties have been getting more interested in this is that it gives them more of an ability to get housing built and in particularly affordable housing. So the way the housing world works, there's kind of there's kind of two flavors to housing. You've got your market rate housing, which is a for-profit exercise. Somebody owns a piece of land, they get a loan or they take their own money, they build some housing, and the entire point is to make a profit. The same way that a person that runs a shoe store, typically, like they're trying to sell as many shoes as possible and they want to make a lot of money doing it as much as possible. The other flavor of housing is affordable, which is what we call deed-restricted affordable, which means on the actual deed of the property, there is a document recorded that says that it can only be rented to households that earn a certain amount of money, which is adjusted for the the region that they live in. So it might be like the average person or a person that makes 80% of what the average person makes or something like that. So affordable housing is really precious because it's affordable to everybody, even though it's brand new construction. So the city of Eureka, like a lot of cities, I've all up and down the state, there are cities interested in this. And city-owned parking lots happen to be generally in downtowns, generally in areas where there's transit, generally in areas where you can walk to jobs and recreations. So yeah, the, the city has been interested in identifying certain certain parking lots and then basically releasing what they call a request for proposals, which is basically waving a big flag out to developers in the world and saying, hey, we've got a piece of land. Would you be interested in building affordable housing on this land? So it's kind of fun. It's happening up here, but it, it really is going on, going on everywhere. So the city of Eureka has had pretty great success with this so far. We have released for development, depending on kind of how you count them, 
four or five parking lots. So we have three that will be developed by the Link Corporation, which is a nonprofit housing developer that specializes in creating affordable housing. And then we have technically two parcels, but they function kind of as one large parking lot behind Lascos Brewery, which will become the new Earth Center, which is a terrible acronym, but it is a transit hub on the bottom. So you're going to have bus services and zip cars and things like that. And then on the top, you have affordable housing specifically reserved for students and then just general affordable housing. And then also housing directed for traveling nurses and doctors, because as everyone who's attempted to get healthcare in this county knows, we don't have enough of those folks. So we have together through this about 150 housing units, which is kind of a wonky term. Brian, what is a housing unit? Housing unit is a home. It's a home. It, it, it's, it's a, it, could be a, it could be a house. It could be a, a detached single family house, or it could be one apartment in an apartment building, or it could be an ADU. It could be anything. You just, you need a unit of measurement for homes. They should just call them homes. So we are building approximately 150 homes through these parking lots. And I think that might be more than the city of Eureka has produced in the years between 2010 and 2020. In total, when you account for all the housing that was created and you subtract all the housing that was lost, it is more through these couple of projects than just trying to rely on people putting in the mother-in-law units in their backyard or converting a house into a duplex or whatever we've been doing in the city of Eureka. So we're able to really take a nice big bite out of our housing affordability problem through these large-scale projects. Pretty exciting. Of course, getting rid of parking has proven to be somewhat controversial because people love their government-subsidized storage for their private automobile. But no matter, housing has one out so far. There's something about affordable housing and what that actually means. The definition of that, because I think that a lot of times in the discussions that I hear, people have a thought in their mind about what that is. But and correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but you know, for something to be classified as affordable housing, if there are income restrictions, it's usually like 80% of area median income, right? Yep. That's the low income tier. The next tier below that is very low income, which is 50% of area median income. And then it drops down. I think extremely low income comes after that. But yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. They set the numbers based on the the population of the average, basically the, the median income in Humboldt County. And then, and it, it changes, right? We could be in Santa Clara County and it would be adjusted for that. But basically it's all relative to, to where you are. So another way to think about it as far as income levels are most low income, I think a, I think our area median income in Humboldt somewhere around fifty five fifty five thousand a year roundabout. Yeah. Well, let's call it sixty thousand for for easy math. So a very low income household will be a household that brings in thirty thousand per year, or a low income household would be a household that brings in forty five thousand. So it's not radical. Probably the person that bags your groceries would be one of those people. Yeah, I just did some quick math. And so the 80%, if we're if we're calling the area media income 55,000, if you are at 80% of that, that's about $23 an hour. That's, that's a lot more than a, a lot of our rate. grocery workers are working. Yeah, so for that one. So it is, but it's interesting to do that math and think about like who in the community fits into these categories. an hour? Uh Uh-oh. I'm I'm in the affordable housing block there. Totally. And that's what really made me think about this. 
was being in a meeting in which someone from the city of Eureka said that when they were talking about those those classifications, they said, oh, yeah, this is classified as affordable housing. The, many of the people who work for the city qualify to live here. And I was like, OK, and that's considered like a good job. So Brian said this already, but I want to make sure we clarify what a person building homes or a city planner means by affordable housing is different than what most people would think of when they hear the phrase affordable housing. I heard the place affordable housing the first time and I thought a place I could afford to live. That was my way of thinking about it, right? But this is, Brian's a deed-restricted units or homes that we, we are specifically holding at a lower price than the market would have set for them. Most, I don't know what the other word for it is, like affordable homes, homes that are that can be afforded. Naturally affordable. Is Naturally the, affordable the homes are market rate homes that are a little bit older. They were built a while ago. And so the price has, has usually fallen, well, or at least fallen compared to what a current brand new home is today. I want to talk about a whole nother category of affordability, which is affordable by design, which is a, a cool way that you don't have to live in the old janky 1924 fall down building in Eureka that has like nine people crammed into it. So affordable by design is just what it sounds like. You have new housing that is built in a way that it's built cheap enough and you can put in enough units that it is going to be relatively affordable to the average person. So typically this is done by having pretty small apartments, your studio apartments, your micro apartments, but it is another potential strategy that we can employ is to allow for these type of small units, this affordable by design. And again, one of the, the things that we can do to enable this to happen is for government to get out of the way because so often zoning restrictions and whatever else demands a certain size of housing unit be produced as a minimum. And so we can start to have things like these micro apartments or the ADU in the backyard of somebody's house, the accessory dwelling unit. And this is another way that we can increase our housing stock and really have good quality housing, relatively new build for folks that is affordable without having to go through some sort of a government program and putting your name on a big, long waiting list to get your housing. Well, and we should talk about with zoning in California, the most common kind of residential home that you can build is a single family home. You know, the, the vast majority of our residential areas are zoned for single family housing and single family homes are by definition not affordable because you're making someone take up an entire lot, just one family. And so compared to an apartment or something like that, they're always going to be less affordable on that same piece of land. And so for a long time, we've actually forced people to build less affordable homes, which seems absolutely crazy to me. So fun fact on, on single family zoning, we were talking about Berkeley earlier, they they actually invented that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> In like, I think like 1920. The enlightened planners coming out of the University yeah. of California, Berkeley. So, so in the beginning, zoning has only been around since the 19-teens. And it started as a health and safety thing. It was uh, tenements in New York City that didn't have windows. And they said, you know what? We should we should make sure that all humans in their homes have access to air and light and don't burn to death in fires. That was basically like you get some air, you get some light and you don't burn to death. And like, that's where they drew the line. And then from there, it just it just really grew. And there, there is an exclusionary side, an ugly side to zoning, which after World War II, we kind of got slightly more in Enlightened, I think, as a, as a country with you know civil rights movement and whatnot, and you you couldn't just be exclusionary towards a certain kind of rung of society. You couldn't just say, 
well, we don't want any poor people in our town. Like you couldn't put a ban on on low income. You couldn't people. say that explicitly. You couldn't say that ex- explicitly. But you could use the tools to to exactly. So, that. so the way that that you could use zoning to be, be very exclusionary is really simple. It's really really straightforward. You just say, you know what, we're not going to allow apartments in our town. And lots of cities did. They just said no apartments. Period. No apartments because they know apartments typically have lower income people. And then they said, you know what, let's only have homes, but let's make sure they're all on big lots. Let's make sure every lot is a half acre. And then they said, let's make sure every house has to be at least 3,000 square feet. And that's all just very kind of benign words in the zoning code. Minimum lot size, half acre. Minimum house size, 3,000 square feet. You know, all this stuff. Ban- and then you just ban apartments. It's pretty innocent. On the page, it just says single family homes, yes. Apartments, no. And people say, hey, you know, this is the town we would prefer to have because we just like big lots and big houses. But then the practical effect of that, it's like the country club. Right, you have to have the money to buy into the club. You have to you have to buy your way in, and if you don't have the money to buy your way in, then it's just not my problem. Move somewhere else, you know. And that's that's not <laughs> that's not optimal. I would say that it, we're seeing an unwinding of single family zoning in a lot of communities across the U.S. now, and a real reckoning of the the way in which zoning has been used as this silent tool, this bureaucratic tool to keep communities wealthy and white and exclusionary. And in Minneapolis, which was one of the first major American cities to formally remove single family zoning from their their codes, in that process, the big aha moment for their city council and the reason why it, it moved forward was because they were able to show using historic maps that single family zoning mapped almost exactly onto race restrictive covenants when those were no longer allowed to be used. So in olden times, you could actually say, you cannot sell this home to a person of color. It was actually, it was, it was, it was not a silent, it wasn't this hidden process, it was explicit. And then when that became illegal, then zoning was used to basically reinforce that exclusion and, and segregation. And so Minneapolis was able to prove that single family zoning almost exclusively lined up with race restrictive covenants and was basically a de facto form of racial segregation in their city. And that was a really big reckoning moment for them to kind of unwind what was a very destructive policy. I do think one more thing I want to say on this is that single family homes have been heavily subsidized by our government. That that actually the biggest form of housing subsidy in America is the subsidy of single family homes through mortgage support and the tax write-offs that we get. And so we've we've actually really encouraged this form of development and so that the financing that you're seeing put behind affordable housing is really quite small in comparison to the ways in which our our systems have propped up single family zoning for so long. So I think we're overdue for a real investment in affordable housing and in multifamily units and in new housing types as the way of the future as we see this sort of old way of of building and housing is is not sustainable. And we see that in so many ways right now, environmentally, economically. And so I think it's exciting that we're having sort of a, a national reckoning around housing. So we haven't banned single-family homes here in California, but we've made some very significant steps. We've we've put a lot of chinks in that armor. So, Brian, what has the state done in recent years to get more involved in the housing conversation? Because historically, as we've talked about throughout this show, this has been a local government power. The power to regulate zoning has primarily been employed by local governments, and unfortunately, it's been employed too often to restrict housing development. So what has the state 
of California doing in response to the statewide housing crisis? Let, let's just go at, at the single family housing. What what has changed now at state law that kind of undoes some of the damage done by this zoning classification? Yeah, well, that is a big answer. With regard to single family residential neighborhoods, probably the biggest one are is ADUs, accessory dwelling units. Some people call them granny flats and whatnot. They're basically a, a little apartment. You can make it by converting a garage. You can convert a portion of your house into a little apartment. Arcade is full of them. Probably lots of college students live in them. That's a big one. For a long time, single family residential meant single family residential. And up till a few years ago, the state of California said, yeah, but you can have another little apartment in your backyard what they call a form of gentle density because it doesn't change much about the way the neighborhoods look. Beyond that, there's a recent law called SB9, which allows a couple units. Another really simple way to think of it is to say that duplexes are now allowed pretty much everywhere. And then lot splits. As I said before in my example, the minimum lot sizes are a big deal as far as what a neighborhood looks like and how how spread out it is. So it's the idea of taking a conventional, maybe 6,000 square foot lot and splitting it in half, having two 3,000 square foot lots with a little house on each. So that's, yeah, that's probably the single family residential stuff. But but broadly, the arc of the story is that round about World War II, California built a ton of housing and housing was abundant. And a lot of people benefited from that. And from that point forward, we, we kind of just slammed the brakes on housing construction in California. And I think depending on, on the numbers you look at, we're either two and a half million or three and a half million homes and, <laughs> you know, that's like five Wyomings or something yeah. like that. So, right? <laughs> so if you think about it, this the way they calculate that number is basically if we could snap our fingers and have three and a half million homes in California, the median home price in California would be about $350,000 and rents would be around $800 or $1,000 a month. We, we would basically become like Iowa prices if we could snap our fingers and and create that but the kind of the main the main overarching story is that the state is slowly eroding local control and the state means the legislature right there's no like wizard of oz in sacramento it's it's your senator and your assembly member little by little pass these laws that that just take away a, a couple little grains of local control every time to try to slowly tip that balance back towards housing creation. And we're still not there. Local control is is still very, very much a, a big deal. And it's really strong and it should work. I love the idea of local control working. But yeah, my view has been and kind of the view is over the last 50 years, the evidence has borne out that if you give a city council absolute land use control, they will not build any homes. <laughs> My overly cute analogy that I came up with is that local control is like the ring in The Lord of the Rings. We all are covetous of that power. We all desire that power. But we, you know, turn out, turns out we can't really be trusted with it because we make bad decisions. Matt? Well, I, I was going to say the reason I think local control has this effect is because of who shows up at like a local city council meeting. Who has the time to go to the planning meeting or the city council meeting and share why they don't want an apartment building built down the street from them. It's older folks, it's wealthier folks, it's it's people with a lot of time on their hands. Unfortunately, due to our, the way our cities work, local control gives power to local elites, whereas statewide control also gives power to elites, but it's a bit more of a democratic system. And because the decisions being made at the statewide level impact everyone, they can make these decisions in a bit more of a democratic way as compared to local local control. I will take a couple of breaths to, to give a soapbox speech that I gave recently um, about CEQA and housing. 
which is this. So CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, is often employed by these neighbor type groups to fight housing projects under the idea that the environmental impacts weren't properly considered. As a result, I I think that we've seen a degradation of California's environmental law in, in a couple of different ways. One, courts have become more hostile to claims brought under the California Environmental Quality Act. They have started to give more deference to the government, meaning that they will side with the government more often. And then two, they have become more hostile to awarding attorney's fees. And awarding attorney's fees is really important for a group like Epic because we rely on groups like Earth Justice, who 40% plus of their budget comes from being able to recover fees from the other side when they win. So in this way, it's made it more difficult for us to get attorneys because they have a harder time winning. And when we do get attorneys, we have a harder time winning. So if you want CEQA to be used to fight things like oil and gas pipelines, coal trains, whatever else, I I would really encourage people to stop using this law to fight something that that is good with a capital G, which is housing creation. So I will get off my soapbox and then thank all of my guests. And this has been another episode of the Eco News Report. Join us again on this channel next week at this time for more environmental news from the North Coast of California.